Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. So, uh, like I said, you want to check that out. I think that'll be fun. It's uh, pretty useful. I know people last year that went to Dave's talk, uh, a lot of people found it useful and ended up using a lot of the strategies we talked about in the practice. So, that's a good thing. Um, today, for the rest of the course, we're going to talk about comparative cognition. Uh, and comparative cognition, animal cognition, this is sort of the, I don't know what to call this, this is the modern outgrowth of all the learning stuff we talk about. There are, so there's still people doing stuff, you know, doing operative classic conditioning. Yeah, there are. But most of them now take an approach that says that there is a cognitive aspect of this. That, and I've been at this all along, animals represent the real world. That they don't just passively um, respond to the world, that they're an active part of their own learning, that they're cognitive creatures just like us. A couple of caveats, you can't, don't try to get inside an animal's head. Right? Don't try to think like, how does the rat think and try to imagine it? Because you can't. We can't think without being verbal. It's just something we can't do. And also, we have cognitive capacities that no other animal on this planet has. So, it would be like thinking to yourself, what, what would it feel like to be able to just jump out the window and flap my arms and fly? And that's probably even more sensible if you've ever say, I don't know, skydive or, or uh, uh, bungee jump or something. So that's even closer. You still can't really get inside the head of an animal. You have to do it through clever experiments. Um, you'll hear me use expressions like the animal thinks this. And those are, that's not, a, not the same one we're thinking necessarily. You have to keep that in mind. Okay, so um, while it may be very tempting to pull my fly up, it may be very tempting. You always announce when your fly's happen. You never say you should always just say it. I think most people know that if you're in public you say, I'm gonna pull my fly up my fly's up. Because you look at the title. And people think there's something bad going on. That class wants all these people sort of laughing. What's what's so funny? Your fly's down. Don't laugh at me. <laughs> anyway, the when you're talking about this kind of stuff, you're not when I say thinks, when I say represents, again, it's not like us. There's stuff that's special that we can do. But there are commonalities. And of course those commonalities are going to be, you know, the basic learning phenomena, the same, you know, classical recognition that that shows up in us too. But there's other stuff in there. And a lot of this stuff we talked about the other day, we are talking about uh, uh, categorization, uh, stimulus control, really the study of comparative cognition grew out of this. And when I say comparative, it's because typically what's happening here is you're comparing different species with each other. You're not just talking about what the rats do, what the pigeons do, what the squirrel monkeys do, what the black-eyed chickens do. Um, and we'll talk more about that as time goes on. So that's what we'll be talking about for the rest of this. I would like, at some point, actually, uh, I have done a special topics course in animal cognition before. Wouldn't be next. Would, you think, would anybody be interested in that? Really? It's pretty. Yeah, I didn't think so. 
It's okay. I've done it a couple times. One time I got canceled because like nobody signed up. Well, five people. One time I ran it pretty good. Right. So comparative psychology is almost as old as the discipline of psychology itself. You can think of remember what Fool Snorlight doing when he did his puzzle box. He was going to test a bunch of species. Right? He was going to try to find out what animal is smartest and make a, a random ordering of intelligence in animals. And in a lot of respects, that's what we're studying here. It's, it's, it's intelligence, right? You can't have intelligence without cognition. So in a lot of respects, it's novel problem solving, and that's what we tend to think intelligence is. So that's a perfectly reasonable definition. So people have been wondering about this for a very long time. Um, and if you have been, and I know a lot of you guys have been looking at papers uh, for your, art, your article review paper, which is due in a week from today, right? 21st? Um, I know a lot of you guys have been looking at things in animal cognition, because that's more the sort of what people are looking at now. Um, and you may see things like this, serial position effects. You know the serial position effect. I know that a lot of you haven't taken the memory class because it hasn't been offered in two years, and it's not offered again until next term. But serial position effect, you know, you remember stuff. If I give you a list of, of items, say a list of words, and then I ask you which one you remember, which ones you remember, you remember the ones at the beginning of the list and the end of the list, and not so much the middle of the list. The interpretation there is the stuff at the end of the list is still in short-term memory. The stuff at the beginning of the list is already in long-term memory. The stuff in the middle never got processed. So people look at serial position effects. Um, Looking at the obvious anatomy is looking at short and long-term memory. And people have been doing this since, say, rats and pigeons. And those are really the two species that typically people, uh, over the years, have, have looked at, rats and pigeons. Uh, why rats and pigeons? Because they're easy to get. Rats are trivially easy to get. You order them, you call Charles River, which is a company that supplies rats. You can now actually call and order a specific genome if you like. Um, you can get rats that only differ on a certain gene. You can get, usually psychologists don't do this. They just say, you know, we just need the generic rat. Um, I think it's actually Pigeons are a little harder, but there are ways to get pigeons. There's a place in Sumter, South Carolina uh, that almost everybody gets their pigeons from. Uh, and actually, that's a place that breeds pigeons to be made into food. Right? So... Which you can call and say, I get so many pigeons, and then they get people FedEx to me. I caught my pigeons when I was doing pigeon stuff in Newfoundland because I had ordered pigeons and they were going to be delivered on September the 11th, 2001. Uh, and things, you know, there were other things going on that day. <laughs> so I never got my pigeons. They were calling the people and they were apologizing. I said, you know, it's really okay. A war just started. You don't have to worry about my pigeons. So I actually ended up catching my pigeons in the wild. Um, the wild being outside a place called Rod's New to You, a pawn shop in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland. He actually had a, per a permit to catch uh, wild birds. And then I released them when I was done with them when I left Newfoundland. And they all just, I took them to my house and uh, released them all. And they all just sat up on an electrical wire and poured them. Okay. Like, <laughs> guys, you can go now, really, seriously. And then one flew away, one flew away. That's kind of cool. But typically, they're easy to get. They're easy to get. Uh, you might see stuff with monkeys, uh, chimps, a lot harder to get those, but you can get a hold of animals like that. So, but typically, it's rats and pigeons, 
Pigeons one a little harder to get last for a long time. They only live 20 years. Rats are just easy to have, so they're easy to maintain. Uh, and companies actually make rat, Purina makes rat chow. There is Purina rat chow. Just like Purina dog chow and cat, there's rat chow. There's also Purina monkey chow. Uh, so you can get that, that's easy. Pigeons eat grain, so I didn't use buy it. They grain by birdseed, basically, with put some popcorn in it, and they're happy. Um, so while it's very convenient to use those two species, and, and nothing wrong with using them, I mean, we've got a lot of great data from both those two. There is an implicit question being asked when you're talking about serial position effects, short-term or long-term memory, etc., in rats and pigeons. And that question is, can rats do what humans do? Why look at serial position effects? Well, because we found them in people. Right? <laughs> that says, why would we look at that? Um, so the question you're asking, and in this case it's an implicit question, it oftentimes is an explicit question. Um, when you're actually literally saying the rats behave with people, you don't see as much as you used to. But on the surface, this even seems like an interesting question, and it almost seems sensible. And the way that my sort of somewhat sarcastic wording there should give you a hint that it's actually not a very sensible question. So what's the basis for this question? So, because at first you might think, well, it's interesting, but really, I mean, and those of you that have taken 3286 or are taking it, and those of you that are in the thesis class or will take the thesis class know that one of the questions you get asked all the time is who cares? Really, right? Like, why is this interesting? You know, it's not that isn't that cool. The question you're getting asked is, why does this matter? Theoretically, why does this matter? That's what you're getting asked. You're not, when, when someone says, Laurie told me she always asks this, and who cares? And the reason she's asking that is, it's not that something isn't cool to find out, but just saying, because I want to know, isn't a, a good answer. Right? It's, it's theoretically interesting. Is there a basis for this? So we have to figure out what the basis for the questions. What's the basis for a question like this? And <clears throat> The basis for this, really, when we think about it, must mean that there has to be some rank order in the species. And Campbell and Honos in 1969 wrote a great paper called Where is the Comparison in Comparative Psychology? Um, it's a classic paper, a classic review. Came to the conclusion that comparative psychology was confused. Confused such that they there was this notion that there was an evolutionary ladder. That at the top, of course, well, we'll be humans. You know, we designed the ladder. And then it moves down somehow. Eventually, down to perhaps slime molds, I don't know. <coughs> but if you're going to rank order species on things like, is there a serial position effect of a capacity of long-term memory or something, you are, if you're saying there's a rank ordering and you accept evolution by natural selection, you therefore must believe there's rank ordering, which the only problem is that evolution doesn't actually work that way. Right? It's wrong. There can't be a ladder. You know it's a tree. You've all been taught this. You know it's not a ladder. It's not that, and you may have heard the expression evolutionary ladder. There's no such thing as an evolutionary ladder. Right? It's not like all species just are trying to become humans. It's not like, you know, chimps are like, that was so close. Just 
shooting each other. <laughs> so, you know, it's not like rats are like, if I can only be like a, like a, like a little bit more, perhaps like a hedgehog. <laughs> I, I think that actually because um, if, if, if you, um, if there were any other extant primates, we'd be all obsessed with uh, hedgehogs because they'd probably be the closest thing to us other than other primates. So, uh, it's porcupines, basically. <laughs> We teach porcupines American sign language. Um, so, so I mean, this is interesting because this is incorrect. And the the funny thing is, when you talk to comparative psychologists, the time I'm pretty sure they knew this. They weren't stupid people. They read Darwin. They tried to been introduced to it in high school or university. But because psychology was so separate at the time from biology, the ideas about biology were just wrong. Even if they were only implicit ideas about biology. Okay? So, as most of you know, and if you don't know, then I'm going to tell you. There's no talk of, of a ladder. There's no goal to evolution. Evolution just is. It's like saying there's a goal to gravity. No, there's not. It's just, that's how it works. So ideas like that are wrong. There is no ladder. I can say that with complete certainty. It's not like there's a, there's a rank ordering, right? Nothing is more evolved than anything else. All right. So a better question is, what has driven some species to solve some kind of problem? What evolutionary pressures, what selection pressures have driven a species to solve a problem? Well, and again, you know, probably most of you know technically, what has driven the individuals in that species, but let's just say species. I'm not being a species uh, group selections here, okay? So to solve a certain kind of problem, what selection pressures have driven that species to solve that problem? So, to put it into psychological terms, then, what selective pressures have led to the evolution of certain cognitive mechanisms? Okay. That's the question. That's the interesting question. It's also harder. Because anybody can rank order things, that's easy. Okay. This is a harder question. It also involves understanding evolution properly. So, asking what species is the smartest is really a silly question. On some level. Now, I will tell you that there is human exceptionalism. I, I would not, and I think, Sarah, if you, if you do have the, the optional textbook, Fundamentals of Comparative Cognition, Sarah makes, I think, a pretty strong case for human exceptionalism. There are things about humans that nothing else can do, and there are a lot of them. Yes, I know we can't fly by flapping our wings, but we can design freaking airplanes. You know, <laughs> we can invent things. So there's stuff that, that no other species is doing stuff like that. We actually manipulate our environment and say how other species do. We do it on a level uh, unseen in, in, in the history of life on Earth. It's sometimes to detriment of us, but you know, we do pretty amazing things. We live everywhere. Our range is everywhere but Antarctica. Yeah, there's a few scientists that have done We've been to other worlds, you know, the moon. We don't screw around. Right, so we don't just say, no, we're supposed to live here, it's just the right temperature. It's like, no, temperature's temperature. We'll burn fossil fuels. It'll be awesome. We'll build buildings. 
will wear clothes. Yes, I know some chicks wear clothes, but people dress them. Some people's dogs wear little sweaters. And if I see one more Facebook post for someone with their dog in a Christmas sweater or a Halloween sweater, and then they say, oh, my dog's embarrassed. Well, your dog doesn't get embarrassed. Dogs don't feel embarrassed. If they did, they wouldn't eat their own puke after they vomited. Boy, I'm naked. Hey, look, that's all you can do about the age. So we can certainly say that there's stuff that nothing else on this planet can do, and there's a lot of those things and things we do. One of the biggest, of course, is language, which we remember now. But there's still are animals that do things better than we do. Right? While humans are exception, are our exceptional. There's no argument. There are some pretty exceptional things that other animals do. So, actually, it sounded like this website is dead. Um, I was asked once by, that's the old Discovery Channel website. Uh, I was asked, this was years ago, 1990 something. Um, you know how they have that you ask for it thing on the Discovery Channel sometimes? They don't, maybe they don't do it anymore, but they would, have, they would ask scientists. So, people would write in questions and they'd ask scientists questions. So, they asked me. Somebody asked, what's the smartest animal? And uh, they asked me and a biologist, I don't know why they picked us, but they picked us. And the biologist said, maybe the pig. Uh, I forget what the reasoning was. And pigs are fun. And, and they're delicious. <laughs> um, but I said, it's kind of a silly question, really. Um, I'm pretty impressed with Clark's nutcrackers that can recover 25,000 seeds. Uh, of the 30,000 they catch in the 40 kilometer radius. Six months later, that's pretty impressive because they do it without writing it down using GPS. But then, to make the point about human exceptionalism, I said, however, I've never seen a car a cracker drive a car or start a civilization. Right? But the point I was making was it's kind of a silly question. I don't think I actually said that because I didn't want to make somebody who was nice enough to ask the Discovery Channel a question and then make the Discovery Channel look stupid for asking the question. So I said, well, I'm Mark Clark's not crackers, but I've never seen civilization. point I was making then is that that's impressive what they can do. Right? But there's other things they can't do. And that's true of all species. This includes us. I will say that while there's something special about our cognitive abilities, we are still just animals. The huge difference, probably, I guess, the, the, the overriding one is we know it. Right? You don't see other animals that know anything but have that kind of self-knowledge, also knowledge about, about the world and how it works. Um, so if we're going to compare, and this is what we're going to be talking about, is comparing species, we'll talk about sort of hardcore animal cognition, as, as Sarah used to call it. But we'll also talk about comparing species. If we're going to compare species, how do we compare two species on the same path? So if we run... Well, here's a, here's a very common animal, and I'll talk about this later on, but here's a very common animal cognition kind of task. Let's say we're using pigeons, and we show them a key light, and it's red, and then there's a, there's a, there's a pecking face that goes off, then there's a retention level, then they get a choice between red and green. And half the time this is red, half the time this is green, half the time the right answer is on the left side, half the time it's on the right side. Yes, we are methodologically obsessed with that. So that's all taken care of. That's called delayed matching the sample. Um, 
That's the sample. You have to match the sample against the name. If you get it right, you get food. If you get it wrong, you get a new trial. So you get no food. Fair enough. So let's compare pigeons and, oh, I don't know, let's pick another species, jackdaws. Another bird species. And we'll compare the jackdaws are known to be pretty smart. Thought that way. They're, they live in Britain and they're like, they're, uh, they're mimics. <laughs> they mimic sounds. Yeah. Pretty smart. So if you think maybe a jackdaws are smart, maybe they'd be better at this. Well, let's say we find the jackdaws are better than pigeons. Spoiler alert, they're not. That's just a little alert because we'll talk about a paper comparing pigeons and jackdaws. Probably if it is. How do we know that if we do find a difference between pigeons and jackdaws in this task that it wasn't due to motivation? You know, that maybe the food we were using was more palatable to pigeons. Maybe they like it better. Maybe, yeah, we probably deprived both species, member, like both groups, so this, the group here is species, both groups of food to make them work for food, right? That the, the, the reinforcement has to have some value. Um, maybe 85% of your free feeding weight is a lot more difficult for a jackdaw than a pigeon, or vice versa. So how do we know that this isn't due to a difference in motivation? We don't. We, we can't. Right? You would say, well, we could randomly assign them. You, you guys have taken 21, 27, most of you. You can't randomly assign animals to species. <coughs> if you do that, people will start writing up on Sundays to worship you. Right? You can't. That, that's, we don't have control of this. We have all these other variables here. So we have, you know, pigeons and jackdaws. Jackdaws are that big. Pigeons are that big. <laughs> Already, we can't say, well, we'll find giant jackdaws or miniature pigeons. You know, we can't control variables. Like, and we normally, great, good, good old psychology, we would just randomly assign the groups. Everything would be great. We can't do that here because. Nature's done that for us. Damn you, nature. So we can't know. Could it be due to a cognitive difference? Of course it could be. But could it be due to a difference in motivation or due to a difference in, um, well, all kinds of other things. But motivation seems to come to mind. Yeah. Huh. A low one, you Thousands of dollars of cough drops is now. Eat cough drops. Got a cavity. I'm going to live a lot longer, but I'm going to have really bad teeth. Um, so, bitterman. I, I, no, I thought that we did this. Bitterman. Uh, it's not, bitterman's still alive. There's done some great work over the years. Uh, bitterman's got to be like pushing 90 yet. Um, came up with the paper in like 1965. This shows you how long he's been around. Um, this year I was born. And Bitterman said that, and this is a paper in science, it wasn't like this was in some shitty journal, that he tested many different species. So leave the motivation for a second. But he's tested many different species. This included uh, goldfish, turtles, 
rats and pigeons, people. I think some monkeys. But he also sort of collated a whole bunch of data. And he said that there was different kinds of learning. That there was human learning, and then there was like pigeon-like, well, rat-like, and then it was pigeon-like, and then reptile-like, and then fish-like. Any rank or And in the paper, you can actually see rank order. And that's bad. Because that's an evolutionary lab. So we said, yeah, we've got this, you know, there's different. And now, are, is it the case that there are different pigeons of, hell yeah, sure, pigeons and rats. Why would there be differences cognitively? There's differences other ways. Pigeons can fly, throw a rat out of the window, it's just going to hit the ground. Right? Throw a fish, take a fish out of water, it's smooth. Take a pigeon, force him to be underwater, he dies. So, I mean, there's already differences there that we would imagine to be cognitive differences, isn't there? Sure, of course there are. But if they're in the right order, that's just wrong. Yeah, then. The learning, the, the comparable learning that would be taking place between species be related more environmentally? What do you mean? Well, first of all, learning is environmental. It's always about learning where you are. So yeah. Right. I mean, like, okay, we take a wolf and a fox, mm-hmm. different species, mm-hmm. somewhat. Mm-hmm. I could probably use a different example. But they live in the wild and in the woods, the yep. forest, whatever. Roughly the same you take, you take um, an eel and a fish. Well, eel, in the water. an eel is a kind of fish. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, eel, how about an eel and a water snake? Okay. Okay, let's go with that. But you've got different species that live in different yeah. environments. Yes. You have to survive somewhat similar. Well, there are things that are going to be similar. I mean, I think we would, I think. Nobody here would argue that you know being able to, to short-term predict the future associated learning that should be available and it is in every single species you will see class conditioning it, it's shown up it shows up in fact in things that have very few neurons anything with the nervous system is going to show up uh, there's going to be some kind of instrumental conditioning in almost every species that can that can move uh, again not surprising but. On an evolutionary level, yes, I would expect that it would be completely, well, completely, heavily affected by, well, yeah, completely, because evolution works from the environment. It's, it's from the environment, for sure. But, how But if you take, well, you can't. That's the thing. That's what makes this stuff hard. You can't manipulate it. Because you can't manipulate the evolutionary history of an animal. Right. Oh, how it manipulates the environment. And in a lot of respects, that's that's what learning is on a very usually small scale is, is environmental manipulation, right? Because it's like being able to predict the future, right? Um, can lead to you know feeding certain places, and that's there, there you go. That's environmental manipulation. So the environment, well, really, I mean, it has to. I mean, especially from the evolutionary angle, it must. But. I think what you're saying is if we can take a fish and make it solve problems that rats face, we would get, quote, rat-like learning in fish. Is that what you mean? No. Okay? I'm wrong. 
I was just meaning like species that would have to live in the water would have similar um, oh God, yes. Cognitions or yes, systematic survival. Yes, and in fact, I would even argue that I would bet that on, a, on things like spatial things that uh, fish and anything that flies have some similarities because they have to move around in six degrees of freedom of movement, not just four. Right? We don't we don't get to go up and down. That doesn't really count. Right? So. I would see some things there, yeah. In fact, my friend, my friend Rob and I for years have talked about sending, trying to convince the internet, we never were going to do this, we always talk about it after a few drinks at a conference, that we're going to convince the International Space Station people to take some rats and see how they navigate a maze without any gravity. Yeah, it's not going to happen, don't worry about it. But it's something Rob and I, Rob and I talk about. We talked about a lot of things. But this is one of those cases where, yeah, I mean, clearly the environment's going to make a, a big difference. And I mean, we would expect similar kinds of problems to be faced by a water snake and an eel. And in fact, the, like, the reason I pick those examples there, in fact, is we have two things that even look the same. There's been obviously very similar selective pressures on both species. And they're quite distantly related. One is a reptile, and one is kind of fish. A delicious fish, by the way, when we eat. It's good. It is. You guys don't believe me. It's awesome. So, yes, yeah, sushi, exactly. They yeah. make the smoke of our keel. Yeah. yeah. Oh. Oh. So, bitterbit is rank ordering species. Why do people like that? This is what Hodas and Campbell were replying to. Guys, this is just wrong. Uh, Bitterman then came back and said, that's not what I said. And everybody was like, well, yeah, actually, it is what he said. So. In the early 80s, a guy named Ewan McPhail, who's from Scotland, and I'm going to then pretend to be folks like this, because I'm pretty sure Ewan McPhail, not with a name like Ewan McPhail, clearly speaks like this. <laughs> In science, we started with the non-hypothesis, so nothing happened. Right. I've only ever emailed the humans, so I remember his accent. I remember I read an email from my figure, it's a new Scottish accent. Dinner, yeah. Dave, haven't heard from you in quite a while. Read <laughs> <laughs> the new paper, you might want to take a look at it. So we start with the gnaw, right? Nothing happened. Y'all know that, y'all know what gnaw hypothesis. I'm with you so far. What's our alternative hypothesis here? We have two species, we're comparing them on some task. Our alternative is there is no difference, or there is a difference then between the two species. The null is there is no difference. Okay, good. So far, you'll be seeing this in how things work, that's totally sensitive. Now, here's the rub. He says, but if we find a difference, it's just, we got to remember the ideas that, that, that um, motivational stuff, we've got to keep that in mind. It could be that any difference we find is simply due to a motivational difference between the two species. Right? And that's true. We talked about the, our, our fictitious pigeon jackdaw experiment. We don't know, assuming that the, the jackdaws do better, we don't know that they did that because they're hungrier, maybe. So they got, they're more motivated. 
Right? We just don't know. So any difference we find could be motivational. It might not be actually a real species difference in cognition. Oh no. And then McPhail said in this famous paper that the only difference that we can reliably talk about between any species in the animal kingdom is that humans have language. And animals are everything else, and they don't have language, and we do, so we win. Alright. On the surface, this sounds pretty intelligent. I, I'm saying the argument is an intelligent, let's say you even fail as an intelligent, which is pretty smart guy. Al Camel, there he is right there holding the clerk's not right there. Al Camel, who will be shortly in the March, will be awarded a sort of lifetime achievement award for the Jared Project Society. I will be there. I just bought my plane tickets. So I've taken a course of a week, you get a week, you get a week off in March because I'll be for he goes, oh, you went to Florida? Yeah, like, I want to go to Florida. Look at me. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, I want to go hang on the beach. <laughs> yeah. Malignant melanoma is my favorite flavor. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to. I, I would rather they had it in, like, Edmonton. Well, not Edmonton. Chicago. I'd, I'd be really happy with Chicago in March. It'd be cold and all that, but it's Chicago. Anyway, so there's Al. Al is uh, held by a very interesting fellow, known for, she's 88, uh, you know, I guess now. And he's a uh, psychologist <coughs> and biologist at the same time as he's cross-appointed. Uh, he's at the University of Nebraska, alongside time he's at the University of Massachusetts, UMass. And he, uh, yeah, talks, he talks uh, quite a bit like this. He's a very good Al Camel impression. Uh, most of the people don't meet Al Camel, uh, if you do, you will think back and say, that really dates very good impression of Al Al used to smoke cigars, and I think he had a heart attack or something, so he didn't smoke cigars, he just he chews on them. Little cigars. He's always... And he always does wear suspenders. It's his thing that he does. So Al Campbell, in an amazing paper, a scathing rebuke. Yes. Bit of a flaw here. You set up a hypothesis and you can't reject it. Because if every time I show you a difference between two species, you say it's motivation, then you have made it impossible to, why don't we just quit then? Let's stop forever. Do you see the logical flaw in McPhail's approach then? Right? It's like if someone said, every time they bring you evidence, you say, yeah, it's not enough. Yeah, it's not true. No, I won't do it. So it's 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 a, it's a logical problem. It's a beautiful philosophical response, right? Because you're showing complete flaw in the logic of you and fail. So then the question is, well, Mr. Smarty Pants, Mr. Suspenders guy, how do we fix it? Well, there is a way, and the way is that you test many species in many different paradigms. You don't just test them one match matching the sample. That could be biased towards the pigeons of the jackals. You test them on other paradigms. This reminds me of the recent um, complaints during the US election when people said, oh, Rodney's ahead. 
right? When he was looking at certain goals. But Lazarus has him up by three, ignoring all the other poles. If you take all the poles put together, it was pretty clear what was going to happen. Right? So if you read 538, the Silver's blog during the election, you saw what was really going to happen. Because he was taking a lot of data and putting it together. I'm not saying he was uh, inspired in any way by El Campbell, because I know who the hell El Campbell is. But it's the same approach. It's the idea of if we put a lot of data together, the biases cancel each other out. Right? So we find, the, we find similar differences in many different tests. It's unlikely that motivation is always the reason for those differences. Right? And again, it's the same idea that you've been following this stuff in the States as what Nate Silver did, and so did the same way for other people who were the election. And they were saying, look, if we just look at one company's polls, there might be error in there, there might be bias in there. But if we look at all of them together, it's unlikely if we find a trend going one way or the other, that it's always biased in the same way. Which is why Nate Silver, Sam Wang, guys like that, were able to predict the actual election deadline. Well, Silver was off on the popular vote by 0.2 percentage points. He's clearly a liberal hack. Um, so it's unlikely the motivation will be the It's possible. You know, it's possible, but it's unlikely. Error tends to cancel. That's an expression we have in, in, in statistics, really, which is error cancels. If I do enough experiments, well, well you guys know this, 0.05, right? Five times out of, out, of, out of 100, one time out of 20, the reason you found a significant result is because of sampling error. It happens. I'm convinced my whole career is built on sampling error. Now, he didn't like Part of it anyway. But if we do the experiment enough times, we find the real result. That's why, again, you never base decisions on single studies, do you? This is why we don't base, when, when one thing comes up and says, you know, it turns out that uh, smoking's good for you, you don't go, oh, well, okay, smoke up. You say, uh, gee, there's one study that way, and in this way. I think that that's not enough for me to ignore. And it doesn't have to be that people are cheating, put their thumb on the scale, that kind of thing. It's just that the logical difference is sampling error. It does happen. But we know over time, error cancels it. goes positive, one way positive. If there's no effect, you're bound to find one effect one way or another. Eventually, it should be 50 50, cancels out. Sometimes you should be sampling error, so it's one here, 20 over here, you go, okay, well, I'll take the 20. So the idea here is if we do a lot of experiments, and we keep finding the same result in a lot of different paradigms, this is a memory test. Let's do a different memory test compared to Let's do a maze. How do you do a maze with birds? Well, you make them fly. You do a flying maze. You can do that. What about this is with color? What if we did it with spatial locations? So we have two keys here. One of them lights up. And then we have two keys here. And they have to respond again here. So it's just the space. The color is the same. 
If it's a real difference in how good their networks are, we should expect it to always work that way. No matter what kind of task it is. Right? Shouldn't matter. Shouldn't matter. And this is the wacky idea. Instead of just saying, did rats do what people do? Let's look at the life history of these species. A life history is a biological term, most of you know this, that, or you might not, but if you, if you don't, it's, the, it's basically looking at the environment the niche the animal lives in. It's maybe if it's maybe existing to how it eats, basically how the animal lives. Um, biology in general, let's look at the neuroscience, let's look at the brains. Because behavior, I don't know if you've heard about this, comes from the brain. So let's look at the learning neural differences. And, of course, Who's going to do the experiments? Who's going to look at the mechanisms? That's us. So we have to look at all of these things. Comparative questions are, by definition, multidisciplinary. They're huge. They're, they're, they're because we're talking about from the sort of population biology and genetics and neuroscience and all that to the psychology as well, right? I think that makes sense. And ask what sort of differences should have evolved. That's the question you should ask. So when someone says that they think that jackdaws are smarter, they should say, why? What selective pressure has led to that? Why should they generally always do better? Which again, but they don't. But. Why should they always do better? That's a question you have to ask. What sort of differences should have evolved? Okay, does this make sense, this sort of theoretical background to this stuff? Questions? I don't see this up. This, by the way, was a minority opinion when Al came out with it. And it is now not a minority opinion. This is now the way most people do things. Which is good because it seems to me correct. So there's two approaches you can take. You can do the rats do what people do, which Sarah Shuttleworth calls the anthropocentric program which is really kind of like anthropomorphizing. Or you can do what she calls the ecological program, which is looking at the animal's ecology. Al Camel, this paper that Al Camel wrote this in is called The Synthetic Approach to the uh, Evolution of Animal Intelligence. The synthetic approach, meaning he's synthesizing stuff from different fields. Does this make sense? Understand this? The crazy idea, instead of saying is the difference, the, the anthropocentric approach is let's see what happens. It's a program of demonstration. The ecological approach is here's what we think will happen. It's a wacky idea. They're called predictions. So, can X do Y is not an interesting question. Can species X do what species Y does? It's not a good question. 
Are species X and Y different because of their different niches they're in? That is an interesting question. And it's what we can actually predict in predictions of. Okay. So the best example of this stuff, of using this approach, is work with on food storing birds. Uh, by far the best version of this. Uh, it's, it's used this um, approach really since it's people started looking at food storing birds uh, scientifically. Looking at so that's a black cat chicken. Silius atracopolis. That is a black cat cracker. They look the same size as chickens that big as you know. Um, that's Sarah Shuttleworth. That's her on South Park's Road in Oxford. I can tell because I know who that is, and I, well, I can tell Sarah because I know her. She's a question. She looks very happy there. Um, she just won, she won an award for the American Foundation Society. She also won an award for, from uh, the Canadian Society for Brain Paper and Cognitive Science, the Donald Pebble Award for this year. for. Uh, Outstanding contributions to the new study of experimental psychology. Um, that's who she did a lot of her early work with in that area uh, at Oxford. It's, that's John Krebs. Uh, Lord Krebs. Sorry, is it Lord John? You said the last name first? No, it's Lord Krebs. Of White and Wood. And he's called that because he did all the studies of all these birds in White and Wood outside Oxford. He's a member of the British House of the Boards. He's a knight. He's a sir. And he's a baron. And I, when, when Sarah won that award, I was one of the people that nominated her. So we wrote John, because John wrote a nice letter saying it was a good idea that she would get it. And um, I hadn't written John an email in 20 years, so I had to write him an email. I thought, wait a second. He, breach protocol. He's a knight, a sword, a baron. What do, how, do I, how do I even, you know, how do, what do I say? So I started, you know, dear Lord, you know, that's weird. I'm also opposed to titles. Unless I am, then I'd be all for it. <laughs> um, see, Baron, no. I look up his email. I look, first of all, I look up his email. Um, the email address is the principal of Jesus College of Oxford, which is an old, one of the colleges of Oxford. So his email is actual principal at Jesus. Just <laughs> kind of their email address. Uh, the Oxford.at.uk. I was like, hmm. So I just said, screw it, like, hey, John. <laughs> he was all happy when he played. I gave great news. Great news on Simba. Because he actually, he was good. His father, you ever heard of the Krebs cycle? His dad discovered that. Yeah, so like, his dad's kind of a famous biologist, too. I would not have gone into biology if my dad wanted to go out prize biology. I've you know, said so this before to some of you guys, I would have gone into NASCAR. And I did something you know, totally different. I said that to him once. He said, What's this NASCAR? He said, It's like Formula One, but in Georgia. You know, just go in circles. Fewer supermodels. More cans of beer. Uh, this is Dave Sherry. He's done a lot of this work, too. Uh, that's some of his old graduate students. That's fun. I told you guys sometimes I just say things for my friend Mike. There's my friend Mike right there. Uh, that's Rob Hampton. He's a model spot on Sarah's graduate students as well. That's him on his like wedding, uh, like what do you call it? Hiding. Somewhere in Africa, he's holding a warthog skull. Because that's the kind of thing love does. 
So that's a bunch of people that did a lot of this work and are still doing some of this work. I like, you know, I'm also showing you this uh, because uh, I like those guys. So this is how you start this kind of work. This is this is what I love about this stuff. Anderson Krebs, you got John right there. Um, 1978. This goes back a long ways. They started that instead of like, let's compare pigeons and rats. They were looking at food sorting. So these rat, these these birds, are, uh, birds in the, in the um, families of the parents, it's paradeck, that's the chickadees and the tits. Uh, that's uh, corvidae, that's the crows and nutcrackers, and citidae, that's the um, nuthatches. They store food in scattered locations and recover it hours or days later for consumption. Which is a sentence I've written in articles I've written in like 10 times. <laughs> so that's why that sounds like I wrote it in advance, because I have. So it's neat behavior. It's very neat behavior. You can watch it. If you have a bird feeder starting soon, if you have chickens coming by, and chickens do come by, you'll see they'll eat some of the food at the feeder, but they'll also fly away with a seed in their mouth. They're taking it away to store it. Taking away store, pretty cool. So this is interesting behavior because the conventional wisdom was that what they were doing was they were hoarding their seeds in all members of the species. So they all chickens, all marshes, whatever. Were hoarding their, their their seeds in the same kind of area. So if Mike Chicken stores his seeds out in the favorite place where chickadees store food, then Janet the chickadee comes along, could find my seeds, no problem. Find her own seeds, could find everybody's seeds. It could be a great big socialist paradise. Everybody's storing for everybody else. There's a thing, though, nature isn't a socialist paradise. It's red and tooth and claw, right? I mean, nature is competition. So, they found out, they, they determined through a mathematical model that food storing can only evolve when you recover your own caches. So if you find your own stored seeds, the only time it's going to evolve. Why is that? Well, if it, let's just pretend that it was all nice and pleasant, everyone was sharing their wealth with everybody else, and everyone was storing food for everybody else. Wouldn't that be nice? You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to be selfish. I'm not going to store any food. I'm just going to recover food. And if I just recover food while you're all storing, I'm going to... My genes get passed on. You know why? I've got extra time. While you're out storing food, I can do all kinds of other stuff. Have a second with the wife. No, I'm serious. Pass my jeans on, right? I could be, hey, killing your young. Perhaps eating them. Why not? They're delicious. Wrapped in bacon, dipped in vodka. Deep fried chicken is wrapped in bacon, dipped in vodka. It's something a friend of mine said. One of the water students who did work on chickens. We didn't do that. <laughs> Clear and illegal. You don't kill songbirds. Thanks a lot. 
So I'm going to be lazy. Food storage is going to disappear. Because non-storing is going to win. So the only way it can evolve is if you recover your own caches, your own seeds. It's the only way it'll ever evolve. Right? Does that make sense? You see why? Okay. Well, you saw a picture of Dave Sherry. Dave Sherry was over in Oxford doing the postdoc. Um, Dave Sherry, remember Jerry Hogan that did the dust bathing? Dave Sherry did his PhD with Jerry Hogan. So he's up doing a postdoc with um, John Krebs. And him, uh, Dave Stevens, who we follow each other on Twitter now, it's the strangest thing. Um, and I think it's forgetting his name, that's the problem. They did this really cool experiment. They took pine nuts. And they, they made them radioactive. Now, not so bad that they were, you know, killing plants and animals and causing mutations, but enough that they could be found with a gun cap. So they're just radioactively labeling these seeds. Okay, radioactively labeled seeds. They put them up in white and wood outside Oxford. And marsh pits came along and they very quickly either sort of they find a bowl of pine nuts, they start storing them. So now you can go move them because you can find them really back in town. That's the only reason they made them radioactive. It wasn't like we're going to make evil mutant super marsh kicks with X Men powers. All right. So this is, this is what happens. They go out there, they, they find they leave a third of the seeds, they leave them where they are. They find another third of the seeds, they move them 10 centimeters away. They take the final third of the seeds, they move them 30 centimeters away. Now, if everybody's just finding each other's food, and everybody's happy, and it's just a big, it's like an MVP convention. It's a socialism reference. Nothing? Nobody? Everything's great. They should all disappear at the same rate, though, seeds, shouldn't they? Right? But, if the world's a lot more like Stephen Harper's world, where we're all fighting to survive. If I move one of your seeds 10 to 30 centimeters, you're not going to find it. Those seeds should still be there. Makes sense, right? And that's exactly what happened. The ones that were moved were still there. Some of them were gone, but they were gone at a really low rate, and they figured that was the rate of, you know, squirrels and stuff finding them. Are they squirrels in the UK? They got like um, some other little rogue thing. No, I think squirrels are in North America. Are there squirrels in Europe? You're from Europe, Alexander. Got squirrels over there? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. He's the expert on Europe. He's our Europe expert. I go. He's our go-to European flora and fauna expert in the room. But no, no, there's no, there's no, uh, they're not skunks, right? They have skunks in Europe? What am I thinking of? Oh, that's Newfoundlanders, those skunks, that's right. No, I'm not, trying to, I'm not being sarcastic. I need to be no skunks somewhere. There's no skunks in Newfoundland. Why? Because they just, there's a big bunch of water. They can't get it. They can't get it. No, I remember when we were moving back here, back to. 
civilization from Newfoundland. <laughs> Uh, we stopped somewhere in Nova Scotia for the kids to get out and play, and it was just snowing. And Madeline said, "What's that snow? It smells like home, honey. It smells like home." <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it was squirrels and little British squirrels. It's not an elf. It's delicious. So it sounds like Stewie, doesn't it? That was what I was going for. Get away from me! I'm eating ridiculous. Anyway, so. There was some predation, they call that castration, that was just from perhaps squirrels, maybe little French squirrels that got across on that channel. <laughs> I love this stuff, you know, so I'm just riffing a bit. Um, we're usually. So it seems they're covering their own seeds, right? That's pretty cool. So if they're recovering their own seeds, at the time, we can say, I can now say clearly they're using memory. At the time, it seems like they must be using their memory. They must be using memory. Because we know that marsh ticks aren't animals that smell. Right? They don't smell very Most diurnal birds, their sense of smell is horrible. Right? Uh, Nocturnal birds, on the other hand, uh, they're pretty good at it. But it's nothing like, it's not like uh, you're dealing with like a hound dog or something that's sniffing at it. So, it's probably not smell. Is it memory? That was the next question. You can see where that starts. This starts with the math math model, and then it goes to that's that's called theory of population biology, right? Or behavioral ecology, maybe. Then we go to a field experiment, a super clever field experiment, right? So, and then Sarah Shuttleworth goes and does a, a sabbatical uh, with uh, John Krebs at Oxford. And they had marsh tits storing. Marsh tits are just like little chickadees from Britain. They look just like chickadees, they sound like chickadees. Right? British accents. So they're storing seeds in a lab. And the way this works is a small room. Uh, it's a little tiny room about the size of that's my office. Get up there. Um, and they had four by fours on, like, just like standing up. And then a couple of crosses. It looks like the, uh, the symbol of like the free French in World War II. Like this. That kind of thing, like a telephone pole. So there were holes drilled in this four by four. They, they called them artificial trees. And they had four of them. In, the, in, the, in this little aviary, there was a uh, bowl of pine nuts. The birds are led into the room. They fly in, they, they get a pine nut, and they would store the seeds. They would store these little holes in, this, in these pineapples. Cool. And after a time, after the retention interval, the birds were let back in to the aviary, and they recovered their seeds. What Sarah did, and Sarah ran the experiment, um, is that she would take out half the seeds and move them. The same idea that Sherry did bring the seeds with you, in essence, right? So she'd take half the seeds the birds had stored and move them to other randomly selected locations on the 
I think there were 64 total possible locations, and I think they each stored eight seeds. That's maybe wrong. I think that's the numbers I remember. Um, and then they, so the other possible locations randomly select. Okay, so that's the method. The animals are let back in, and they were much better at recovering the seeds that they placed rather than the randomly selected ones. It tells us it's not smell. Right, or something else, because if it was smell, they'd be able to just, they should find them at an equal rate, shouldn't they? Right, they don't. So half the seeds, just the other term, half the seeds were removed, and the birds eventually looked at where they visited. They visited sites where there were still seeds, or sites where they had removed them. Again, they visited both sets equally. But much more than other places they had to store food. This tells us that they were using it. not using smell, not using some sort of scent marking or anything else. They were remembering where they put their seeds. This paper is the only Sarah told me Sarah there were 150 publications. This is the only paper she ever wrote where it was accepted that any changes at all, and that just doesn't happen. You never get like. You might get something like accepted with, I mean, with very minor corrections, like there's, some, there's a few, might be a typo or change this graph. I've never heard of, she'd never heard of, yeah, that's fine. And she got it, yeah, that's fine. It means it's pretty good paper. So you're using memory. Using memory. Pretty cool stuff. Question about that experiment, sort of perhaps? Now, so people started doing memory tests between storing and not storing birds because then the question, the Al Campbell type question is, well, your 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 life history says that your your life depends on on food that you store. Indeed, in the winter, food stores don't migrate. Unlike almost all other birds, food stores don't migrate. They stay around. They stay all winter. That's why you'll still hear chickadee calls in the winter. Right? So chickens. Their life depends on. Their life depends on. Depends on recovering stored food. If they don't eat, especially when it's very cold out, if they don't eat within Half an hour, an hour and a half after they wake up, they just die. They starve to death. Chickies weigh 12 grams. They're little tiny birds. Little tiny birds. So people started testing storing and non storing birds within different families. That's a, you know, the kingdom of mind, and all that stuff. So families. In the corporate family, that's the nutcrackers and the crows and the jays. Clear differences have shown up in memory abilities that using very straightforward memory tasks such as these that the storers do better than the non-storers. And in fact, it's been shown that food stores that ability, memory ability correlates with dependence on stored food in cordons. Okay? Uh, a lot of that work was done by Deborah Olson. Uh, she was now a PhD student. 
And Deb was comparing Clark's nutcrackers, which are these food storing chairs that are storing all these seeds each year, uh, to like different like, gray jays, blue jays, and then a sort of non, not in the same family comparison was pigeons on a task just like this. Well, sorry, like this one. Spatial match to sample. Okay? And she found that the Clark's nutcrackers could, could have a retention interval between sample and matching the sample of a minute and a half, which is really, really long in these experiments. Pigeons could do maybe 10 seconds, and then in between with the jays, and they were ranked depending on how much food they store, how much they depend on the store food. The neat thing is, later on, on, the, on a color task, there is no difference. Because remembering colors doesn't matter when you're storing food. Remembering space, spatial locations matters a great deal. We would not expect a difference in this kind of task. We would expect a difference in this kind of task. And that's exactly what people like Deb Olson and Bryce Dixon and Alcantara found. Pretty damn cool. It's exactly what you would expect based on their life history.
podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.